I am a marketing and systems person who has learned real estate rather than a real estate person who is trying to learn marketing and branding and systems. And what I mean by that is I feel like CRMs, personal branding, learning what the customer wants and giving it to them, not being salesy, super high integrity, morals, telling it how it is. That's what's wanted in the world, not just real estate, right? The real estate part of stuff is easy. Like, I mean, it's, it's dollars and cents, proformas, cap rates, IRRs, cash on cash. Again, you can learn that stuff pretty freaking quick. It's the intangibles that separate you. You're listening to Ice Cream with Investors, a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life. I'm your host, Matt Four, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success. Welcome back to Ice Cream with Investors. I'm your host, Matt Four, and today we have on Bo Beery. And Bo has been a commercial real estate business in Florida since 1999. He earned his bachelor's degree and master's degree at the University of Florida and also holds a CCIM. As a broker with Coldwell Banker, he was consistently ranked as the number one multifamily producer in Florida and among the top five in the nation every single year before starting his own brokerage firms in 2021. He also has his ever-growing YouTube channel called Bo Knows Multifamily. We'll dig into that later, where he also guides viewers on how to buy more multifamily assets, how to sell them, and how to conduct market analysis. I'm super excited to have another broker on the phone today and talking us through where we can separate ourselves as investors in the multifamily space. So Bo, welcome to the show. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me, brother. Good to connect again. Absolutely. Well, we like to start off with the difficult questions here. What's your favorite ice cream? I think strawberry. I mean, I just, when I think about like when I go to McDonald's, right, with the kids, I always get a milkshake, especially if it's on a Saturday. Saturdays are like my free day to eat whatever I want. I always end up getting these strawberries. I'm going to have to go strawberry. Okay. Do you get a McFlurry with all the toppings in it too? I don't. Just the regular strawberry shake. That's it. Okay. Now, if I go to the crazy ice cream stores, I got a whole bunch of ice cream. I like the mint. I like the chocolate chip and all that stuff. But strawberry is like that consistent, always going to be good. It's funny. That was like my favorite growing up. And I don't think anybody as a kid liked that, but I just, I love <laughs> strawberry as a kid. I do too, man. Tell our listeners, what's the scoop? What do you do today? So I'm a multifamily broker. I cover the Northern half of Florida. I do anything over 10 units, conventional housing or student housing. And I cover from like Polk County, which is like Lakeland and Winter Haven, all the way North to Tallahassee, Jacksonville, down the coast, Daytona, Gainesville, Ocala, all those areas. And my primary customer is, I don't even want to say mom and pop because those don't even exist anymore, but sort of the small syndication up to the medium-sized syndication, if you will. I don't do much business with national investment companies, real estate investment trusts. They use different types of publicly traded brokerages to do their business. Gotcha. Well, tell our listeners, where'd your real estate journey begin? I would say my first taste that really got me excited as soon as I graduated from UF with my undergrad degree, I wanted to be a personal trainer. I didn't get the one job I wanted to Orlando as a personal trainer. I was walking to the gym one day. A buddy of mine was at the top of the stairs. He's like, hey, what's going on? I'm like, well, you know, I just graduated. I didn't get the job I wanted. He's like, well, as a matter of fact, I do leasing and property management on a 400-unit apartment complex that we're building right now in Gainesville. It's still under construction. We need help leasing apartments and managing and handling phone calls and 
pays, I don't know, $30,000, $35,000 a year. Yeah, like I don't have anything, you know, like sounds good to me, right? And I went and interviewed, I got hired. And within a few months, I was the top leasing guy and just fell in love with the business. But what really made me fall in love with just real estate and investment real estate in particular was the property manager was really cool and showed me the books. They showed me the profit and loss statements, the balance sheets. And I was watching essentially 800 people paying for this asset, paying down the principal mortgage every day. And I never saw the owners. Like they came once a year, maybe, and I didn't even get to even talk to them or see them. And so I'm thinking these guys, which was Tremel Crow Residential, which I didn't even know at the time was one of the largest apartment developers in the country. This was one of dozens of assets that they have, right? And every day paying down huge principal amount on the mortgage, not to mention just the net income that was coming in. So I thought to myself, I got to get a piece of this. And that's when I stepped up my education, went and did the master's degree in real estate, and then kind of took off from there. Nice. Well, I want you to tell the story on how you got into your master's program, because one of the things I'm super excited to have this conversation with you is not only how we can separate ourselves as investors when we're talking to brokers, but also the tenacity you have and the processes you have around sales. So can you tell us how did you get into that master's program? Yeah. So I absolutely hate standardized testing. I hate that it's required I know that you have to have weed out process colleges, otherwise everyone would be able to get in, right? And so one of those things is you have to have a certain score on the GMAT. You had to have a certain GPA to get in. You had to have work experience. Uh, You didn't have to have work experience, but it was recommended. And so I had decent work experience, right? I had been with Trauma Crow Residential at that point for a few years. I only had like a 3.5 GPA only, right? Coming out of UF, everyone nowadays is 4.5. But I could not pass this GMAT test, man. I mean, I took it several times, couldn't pass it. And a darling lady named Pam DeMichael was the head of admissions for the master's in real estate program. She was a swimmer, like I was a swimmer. So I kind of, I saw her as my in. She was the one who I believed could get me in the program, could convince the professors to make an exception. And so every day for about 14 months, literally Monday through Friday at about 7.30 a.m., I called her and every time she answered, I would go, good morning, Pam, right? And just, I'm sure it was annoying at first, but I think I grew on her over the course of a year, man. I just feel like I kind of wore them down. They started probably pulling for me more. I finally, with their insistence, passed the GMAT test and I got in. And that was a phenomenal program because it's not just about what you learn in the program. That's all great stuff. But As you know, there's 150 board members in that program that are the who's who of Florida real estate, people who have propelled my career over the last 20 years, people I've done business with. It's a true like fraternity and sorority, the best of the best through that program. Yeah. I think what I'm taking from that story is be consistent and be memorable. Like your good morning, Pam. I'm assuming you got that from Robin Williams. Good morning. That's right. That's exactly right. (laughs) I love it. I love it. I want to get into the master's program, but before we do, you said you were a swimmer. Did you swim at UF too? No, I didn't. I actually didn't pick it up until I was about 30 years old. I was doing triathlons and biking just kind of wore me down. It was too dangerous. Running killed my back. I liked the swimming part of it and I just got better at it. And so I just kind of focus on that now. And I see Pam in the pool still every now and then. Oh man. Well, I am an Ironman triathlete myself. So we'll have to uh, nerd out on that. 
Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's a master's program. I've been dying to ask this question to somebody that's gone through it. So this is a personal question, but did you feel like it was worth it? And you mentioned the network, but the learning aspect of it, is that something you would recommend again? Or do you feel like you could get some of that off of YouTube and the courses that people put together today? From the coursework standpoint, I think you could probably learn that stuff through CCIM. If you're a multifamily guy, connecting with other multifamily investors in some of these groups that have been formed, you know, where you pay a, mem- a monthly membership, I believe you could learn the scholastics part of it. But what you can't learn is you're connected to not only the 150 board members, but those who come in and teach, those who come in and meet the students. You can't call these people up. Okay. Normal human beings, even in real estate, can't call some of the people I've met and now know because they would never take your call. These are CEOs of huge companies, COOs, I mean, really important, very wealthy people that when you're an alumni of UF, of that particular program, you're like a brotherhood and a sisterhood and they want to see you succeed. And that to me is what you're buying. When I was in that program, yeah, I wanted to get good grades, but it wasn't my priority. Like I didn't stress all day and night to get good grades. I made a job of getting to know those 150 people. That's what I wanted. Yeah, which has probably led you to a lot of your success as a broker. So now transitioning the conversation, you are the number one broker in Florida, top five across the country. What's the secret? I feel like I am a marketing and systems person who has learned real estate rather than a real estate person who is trying to learn marketing and branding and systems. And what I mean by that is, I feel like CRMs, personal branding, learning what the customer wants and giving it to them, not being salesy, super high integrity, morals, telling it how it is. That's what's wanted in the world, not just real estate, right? The real estate part of stuff is easy. Like, I mean, it's, it's dollars and cents, performance, cap rates, IRRs, cash on cash. Again, you can learn that stuff pretty freaking quick. It's the intangibles that separate you. And the problem is, as a real estate broker, anybody can get a license. I mean, my 17-year-old, when he turns 18, can go and get his license. It's easy to pass the course. And that's the problem is they make it so easy, right? So you have a lot of yahoos who get in the business, which is actually fortunate because it makes people who are remotely competent stand out. Yeah. And I've heard you talk about your systems and how you systematize your relationships and your follow-ups. And Mm -hmm. I want you to talk a little bit about that. I don't know how to ask that direct question, but can you talk a little bit about like when you're looking at the 100, 200 or so assets in North Florida, how you find the owners, how you figure out who the players are and all that? Sure. So there are 1,996 apartment complexes over 10 units in the northern half of Florida, right? That includes conventional student housing and affordable housing, right? Conventional is about 70, 75% of that, which is where most of my deals are done. And coincidentally, 75% of transactions that sell are conventional, right? Those are owned by only right now, like literally a few weeks ago, 1,000 people even. Literally, wow. one comma zero 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 people own those 1996 assets. It fluctuates from 990 to 1,005, somewhere in there, right? So it's a very small world. And only 300 people, and when I say people, I mean from a REIT down to a mom and pop, only 300 owners own every conventional asset over 100 units. So it's 300 people control that kind of wealth. 
The top 5% of investors own 27% of the assets. It's amazing. The top 1% own 11%. So I wanted to define who is every human being that I could ever do business with. I want to get them into a CRM. I want to call them. And I want to figure out of those 1,000 people, who would actually ever even do business with me? Who are the people who would possibly save my name in their cell phone after a phone call? Who would actually call me to hire me, right? I think one of the problems with a lot of newer brokers starting off, and it's not their fault, it's the broker's fault, is they don't discourage them to go after whales, right? Whales aren't going to hire the 22-year-old. You may get a 500-unit listing every two or three years, But for me, as an independent broker, not associated with a national brand, I knew that I would never get hired to sell a $200 million asset. It's not going to happen, right? They're going to hire C.B. Richard Ellis or Marcus and Millichap, publicly traded companies. And when I looked at my transactional history, almost every one of my deals was as of a certain avatar, a certain kind of investor. What I did was I exported every asset that exist in my markets from the tax assessor websites. That is the only source on the planet that has every asset. CoStar doesn't have every asset. LoopNet doesn't have it. Reese doesn't have it. All these paid syndications, they get their information from tax assessor websites because that is the only source that has it. And the reason it's the only source is they want to tax you. So I exported every single asset from all the Florida counties that I cover into an Excel spreadsheet, which most municipalities can do. I then supplemented the information I didn't get because tax assessors usually just give you parcel number. They'll give you the name of the owner, which is always an LLC and nothing else. They'll give you number of acres. Some municipalities have number of units, most don't. So just basic stuff, when it's sold, what it's sold for, all that stuff. But I wanted to know first name, last name, email address, phone number, cell phone, wife, kids, where they went to school, articles they wrote, articles about them, what their background picture is on Facebook, what their picture is on LinkedIn, who we know together on LinkedIn. I know more about those 1,000 people that if they knew what I knew about them, they would be freaked the hell out. But it's all public information. And so my strategy was, I knew most every broker, when they made phone calls, would say, hey, my name's Matt. I'm with so-and-so. I see you own ABC Apartments. The market's hot. Do you want to sell? I knew every broker was doing that, right? And I knew every investor hated that phone call because I hate that phone call. I own real estate. People call me all the time. I don't want that freaking phone call. And so I wanted to flip it on its head. What does every investor on the planet want? They want to buy more real estate. Every single one of them. Let's just say everyone wants to buy. Let's just keep it. Everyone wants to buy real estate, right? If they already own assets, they want to buy. Unless they're 85 years old, they want to buy more assets. And so once I got all the information in an Excel spreadsheet, like literally every single column had a piece of information, I then imported into a CRM. I use RealNext. There's a whole bunch of them out there. But most CRMs allow you, they talk to Excel spreadsheets. And so I had a real next representative do the import for me so that it automatically populated every single field in the CRM. Now, this takes months and months and months to do this stuff. I'm paying outside people for contact information. I'm paying my assistant to find information about these guys and download pictures and photographs and families and all this stuff. And instead of my job, my goal was not to make 100 calls a day, right? Like everybody else. Those are, that's just pointless. All you're doing, you're never building a relationship with anybody. 
I wanted to make two or three phone calls a day that were super effective. I wanted that person to get off the phone with me. And when he had dinner with his wife or husband that night, I wanted to say, honey, this guy, Bo Beery called me. He's at some broker out of Gainesville, called me up. What an unbelievable human being. I mean, that guy had stats out the wazoo. He spoke to me about what I wanted. He asked me what I was looking for. Let me tell you about the system he has set up. That's what I want. That was my goal, right? So once I imported everything, I then immediately wanted to start categorizing every phone call as a rank A, B, or C customer. The rank A person, which represents about 8 to 10% of all investors, was the person who I've jived with in that first phone call. Like we got along, we either knew some people together, we had the same philosophies, they took my call. I just felt like they were going to save my name on their phone afterward. That was a rank A. And they owned assets that I could actually sell, that they would actually hire me for. Rank Bs were kind of like As, but maybe they're like, they have several broker relationships, or I'm going to have to work a little bit harder to get into graces with them and maybe earn them into an A. And then the Cs were people who were just never going to hire a C never becomes an A. They may become a B one day, but Cs are just like, for me, they were real estate investment trusts, national corporations. Their best friend in the entire world is a broker. They went to college. They live together. No matter what, if I send them a half million dollars, he's never going to use me. And so each ranking, I then created a cadence for. My rank A people, they're going to hear from me every 60 days, minimum. And the reality is I'm going to be talking to them probably every two or three weeks. Rank Bs were a different cadence. Rank Cs were a different cadence but they all went on my drip marketing program. That's kind of the basis, a very long answer to your question. That's the basis of my system on how I've developed very tight relationships with a very small number of people. My rank A's are 144 people. That's it. And of those 144, there's about 30 that I transact with over and over again. 79% of my transactions are with the same people over and over again. I'm taking a lot of notes over here. The first thing I would say is this applies to sales. It applies to networking. It applies with overall relationships you have with people. So that's why I wanted you to explain it. So thank you for that. Is there a reason why you have it at 144? Because I'm going to make a comment on that. So I have a commercial real estate coach. His name is Blaine Strickland. I've been with him for, I don't know, probably a decade. He has determined over his career that if you have about 150 diehard customers in your life, real estate or otherwise, who look to you for guidance, that you communicate with a lot, they could hire you, you could hire them, whatever it is, just 150 people. And when you think about the number of times they sell every five years and the rotation and how that works equals the number of transactions per year, that if you had 150 people, you will have the biggest income for a 20, 30-year, 40-year career that you could ever imagine. I'm up to 144. Some of those 144 are weak, right? Some of these people don't own any complexes, but I could see that it factor in them and I want to be a part of their lives right now. Yeah, I wish I could remember who to give credit to, but there's a book out there that basically talks about at 150 people, civilization starts to crack. So if you look at major organizations, GE, IBM, Pfizer, like the Johnson Johnson, the big organizations, they always have their business units in 150 people. And once it gets to 150 people, they separate offices or whatever. And mm. the military does that. So a Italian, I think, has 150 people in there, a company. Somebody can check me on that. So that's why I asked about the 150. Let yeah. me ask a quick question and then a follow-up. One is, 
Is it better in your mind to classify someone as a C than a B? Yes. I mean, the answer is yes, because the C, you could just kind of take them off your workload. Like all my A, Bs and Cs, they're going to hear from me every month, but the Cs are going to get an email from me. They'll see me on social media. They'll get a video from me once a month. They're still going to hear from me. I'm just not going to take the time to call roughly, I think it's like a thousand something people if they're never going to hire me. Or out of a thousand people, I may do two deals. Whereas if I spent that 60 hours calling those 3,000 people on my 144 people, I'll do 12 deals. I'm just a big proponent on you should have your guiding principles in life and people should know based off of you whether you're a hell yes or hell no. And it's okay for people to step aside and say, Matt for ice cream with investors is not for me. That's okay. I don't know. I heard the hell yes, hell no is a book. It's one of my favorite books. Like, oh, is it? You ever ask me a question? That's one of my favorite books ever. It is so simplified my life. Listeners, if you're listening to this, there's a book that basically the whole breakdown is this. If you have a hard time making decisions or you're deciding on something to do next or how to do it, it's either a hell no or a hell yes. Meaning if you have to think about it and should I do this? Should I go do this speech? Should I take on this customer? Should I sell this widget? And you're thinking about it, it's a hell no, you don't do it. The things that are worth something today are always like, hell yes. Like, I mean, you're just on it. And it's really simplified my life on a lot of stuff. Yeah. So the question I was going to ask a longer winded answer, I guess, or longer winded question is you have a good framework for processes. You have a lot of things that you're juggling and you've kind of got things systematized. How do you set up your weekly reviews and quarterly reviews to make sure that you're on track with a lot of this stuff? What does that look like for you? I would say this. Probably every six months, I kind of look back at, am I overwhelmed? Like right now, there's a few things that I probably should have said hell no to that I didn't, but it's because it's a customer I did business with that I like, right? And so I want to please them. I don't have any formal process on reviewing on whether or not what I'm doing is correct. That's why I have a coach. And that's why I have systems in place. So my systems are supposed to stop even having to check things, number one. But number two, I've always got Blaine once a month when we get together who does a system check for me. Gotcha. The next question I have is, if I'm on the other side of the phone calling you, how do I make a memorable impression on a broker so that they want to send me deals that they want to develop a relationship with me as an investor? Yeah, that's an awesome question. So I would, first of all, get a lot of your ducks in a row before you make the phone call. What I see a lot is, especially beginning investors, let's just talk about a beginning investor, right? Because that's really, that's the main person who wants to know the answer to that question. Contrary, I don't think you want to call brokers and say, Hey, my name's Matt. I'm a newbie. I'm just getting into investing. I've done a few house flips. I bought a duplex two years ago. Yeah, I really wanted to get into buying 20 plexes, things like that. And I heard you were the guy. I don't think you want to do that because immediately you're notifying that broker that you're a rookie. You have to understand there are literally tens of thousands of extremely wealthy, extremely experienced loan a ton of unit investors that we could take any listing to. Why would we take it to you? Why would I go and find stuff for you? And so the better thing to do if you're new, in my opinion, the only thing you can do is you have to team up with a mentor. If you're calling up and saying, I'm new or I own nothing, or I'm just getting into this, or I could use your advice or whatever, I think you're toast. They may still add you to the new listings list, but it's going to be very difficult for you to ever win one of those bids. 
You've got to team up with someone who owns units, who has lots of equity, who has debt relationships, who has experience, who has connections with contractors and property managers and insurance people and attorneys. That way, when you're making the phone call, instead of saying, hey, my name's Matt, I'm a newbie. Hey, my name's Matt, my partner, Joe and I, we own 2,000 units together over in Texas. We're looking at entering the Florida market. We heard you were the man. I'd love to talk to you about my criteria, blah, 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 right? Whole different talk. Fake it to make it. And you're not really faking it. You are partnered up with that person. And I would suggest you you formulate an actual, it doesn't have to be a fully formed entity yet, but some sort of recognition of how the two or three of you are going to work together. I would think at least to have your buy box criteria ready. Like the worst thing you could do is get Bo on the phone and you're like, I'm looking to buy 20 to 1,000 units right. anywhere in Georgia. And Bo's like, what are you doing? I covered North <laughs> Florida and these are the type of assets I sell and you're calling the wrong person kind of thing. Yep, that's true. In your book, you talk about the difference between an elite investor and a regular investor. Can you kind of help us break that down a little bit? Yeah. So I've been in this business for 22 years. The reason I wrote the book, which is right here, Multifamily Investors Who Dominate, is because I've seen a very few number of investors. I've calculated in my market it to be one half of 1%. That these investors transact way more deals per year over a long period of time than everybody else. Versus sometimes there's a guy who's a bull in a china shop who could do six deals a year for three years and he's done and you just crash and burn because it's such a small world. There's only 50 or 60 brokers that control every single sale in the northern half of Florida. If you look at the 80-20 rule, about 12 or 13 of us who do the majority of those deals. So an elite investor, the ones I've been following, I've taken notes for years and I put it all on paper and said, okay, this is how they operate. This is how they don't operate. This is what they do, what they don't do. I go through stories and instances, but essentially it is someone who does way more deals than someone else over a long period of time. And the only way that could ever happen is because of integrity. It's the connections with brokers. It's how they act in a transaction. It's how they treat sellers. It's how they treat their staff. It's two things. It's reputation and building reputation and building relationships with brokers. Brokers do over 90% of every apartment complex sale over 10 units. I literally did a five-year study. I tracked it. I tracked 31% of every sale and 93% of sales were done by brokers. In your market, even if it's only 70%, which I doubt that it is, but even if it's only 70%, the whole point of the book is if brokers are doing the vast majority of all the sales, Why do you want to spend all of your time trying to find that needle in the haystack widow who just inherited an apartment complex and you called her at the right moment and she was dumb enough not to counsel with someone else about taking it to market, instead sold it to you for a discount. Get brokers, get every broker in the market to fall in love with you like elite investors and you'll be fed forever. So these elite investors, they spend all of their time calling brokers and brokers calling them more so about deals before they've even hit a website. And it's because of the reputation they've built. And I think the big difference I see between multifamily and residential is that a majority, to your point, go through brokers. And the reason being is because this is the largest asset they own probably in their portfolio beyond that 1% that owns 11% right. of the North Florida market, for instance. Right. They're not going to take a 25 to $50 million asset and sell it on their own to cut a $50,000 commission check or whatever. They're going to work through brokers. Whereas a residential, 
you're going to find a lot more diamonds in the rough. There's a lot Absolutely. more done off market, et cetera. And a lot of under 10 units. I still think brokers control the majority of sales of even A plexes and quadruplexes and duplexes, but it's not 90%. It's probably 50 or 60%. So if you're new and you're starting off doing quads and duplexes and aplexes, yes, sending letters directly to sellers can work. Knocking on doors, flyers, whatever it is, and communicating with the residential realtors because commercial guys don't do under that size, working with finding out who the residential realtors are who do those kinds of deals and also networking with them. But all your time on 10 and 20 and particularly over 50 units can be spent on the brokers. And if you do that right, we're calling you with deals to do. Yep. So you talked about reputation and integrity. I want to broach the topic of retrading. So we're going into a very interesting market right now. Interest rates are rising. Home values are depressing. Depending on what you look at, you could obviously argue that there's still a housing shortage. So the market could still be stable. But this idea of retrading with a broker can infringe on that. Is it integrity? Is it not integrity? Can you first define what is a retrade yep. for our listeners that maybe that's a new term? And then second, like how you as a broker view retrading? Sure. So retrading is basically once you go to contract with a seller, you have certain price and terms that you are both to abide by, right? And somewhere along the way during your due diligence, you decide whether it's justified or not that this deal no longer meets your original thoughts. And so you want to lower the price or you may want to extend the due diligence or the closing, or you may want to credit a closing, whatever it is you've retraded or renegotiated the terms, right? So in terms of, first of all, the retrades because of the interest rate hikes, those are pretty much over. Did that happen? Yes, because there was a lot of deals that are already under contract when that first three-quarter interest rate spike went up. And there were many deals where sellers had to make decisions. And a lot of the sellers said, hey, sorry, right? Like I'm earning more rent than I've ever earned in my entire life right now. See you later. I'll come back to market in a couple of years at an even higher NOI. And many of them said, well, shoot, it's still a great price. Yeah, I'll adjust a little bit. I understand what's happening. But moving forward, we kind of already know what some of the interest rates hikes are looking like, and many of them have already happened. And so I don't think that'll be happening much moving forward. But how do brokers feel about it? When is it the right thing to do? When is it not? Obviously, no broker and no seller likes a retrade, right? It sucks. Some are justified. The ones that are not justified, which are the vast majority, in my opinion, are, in my opinion, here's how you know if you shouldn't retrade. In my opinion, when you plug in the number you want to retrade into your model, in almost every case, it never moves the IRR or cash on cash by any substantial amount to where you shouldn't buy it. So you can run the numbers, for instance, even on a $300,000, let's say you found something during due diligence, $300,000 is going to cost you, right? Or your interest rate went up or the pipes are just toast and it's going to cost you three hundred grand. On a $20 million deal, when you plug that into year zero, right? Because you're basically going to fix it as soon as you close on the property. It doesn't do jack. It barely moves your IRR, not even a point. I don't think it even does a point if I remember when I did I did a whole bunch of these before. But what happens is buyers look at like 300 grand, like it's stacked on a table. It's a lot of damn money. 
right? $300,000, if someone all of a sudden sent you a bill for 300 grand, you'd be like, what? That is nuts, right? Instead of thinking about this long-term, if you passed up on that property, let's say that seller tells you to take a hike at 300 grand, I'll just keep it or I'll sell it to the next guy. So you pass on the deal over 300 grand because you're just pissed off. Five years from now, after that other person bought it and they sold it for $26 million, you think they gave it about 300 grand? Do you think they cared about 800 grand? Probably not. I know I sure as hell wouldn't. So in my opinion, IRR and cash on cash is the authority on whether or not you retrade. But everyone likes to retrade on principle, meaning, Bo, I found this. I didn't know about this, or the seller didn't tell me this, or you didn't notify me about this, or this happened during due diligence beyond my control. I deserve a discount. That's what I define as the principle-based retrader. He or she is not wrong. Yes, it's not their fault or their problem, but there's nine people behind you who are begging you to back out. They are hoping you're that stupid. And sometimes the seller's hoping you back out because depending on how long you've been in a contract, it's already gone up more in value. He's already increased rents more. So it's two things you're thinking about. How does it affect my IRR and cash on cash? And who's waiting behind me in line? And view it from the long-term. That's a good point. I never really thought about it. If you are starting to move a couple hundred thousand dollars, yes, that's a lot of money. When it's stacked up on a table, it looks like Floyd Merriweather, right? Or Mayweather. Right. But if it's built into your model and it doesn't even move the IRR, why waste losing a deal? And to your point, reputation and integrity over something so small. And it just really doesn't. It's because it's the law of big numbers. And the longer you hold something, the more insignificant it is. A lot of folks out there that are like, you want to get something under contract and then retrade against it. it always just feels weird to me and sticky and Yucky. Now, the people who do it just at a sport, they don't last yeah. long in this business. I mean, there's, yep. there are very few of those who even exist. They die off very, very quickly. The word spreads quickly. I told you there's 50 or 60 multifamily brokers, and most of us know each other, and most of us talk. And then all the investors, like I said, there's only a 1,000 people who own all these assets. I know literally all 1,000 of them, and I know about 500 of them intimately, my A's and my B's, that we talk regularly. And I'm going to spread the word about that joker. There's no question. Yeah. Final question before I get us into the last round here is you have a YouTube channel called Bo Knows Multifamily. You have segments like Deals on Wheels and different lessons that you learn as a broker and also helpful for investors. Help us understand why'd you start the channel? What'd you learn from starting the channel? And just talk us through that. Yeah. So um, July 2020, which is a couple months after COVID was in full swing, I had more time on my hands. Right. <laughs> I was trying to do as much education for investors and keeping people calm as possible. I had a lot of customers calling me during that time. And I was watching more YouTube. And I came across this guy named Ryan Sirhant, who is one of the top residential realtors in New York. I like his style. He's got a big personality. He's a phenomenal marketer. And I started watching him do walkthroughs of properties, basically, make a movie of doing a tour of a $20 million condo in New York. And I was like, man. I could do that. What if I did that, right? And so I did it for an apartment complex that hadn't been selling for a while. The seller was trying to sell it himself, hadn't hired a broker. I did this walkthrough video and it was a hit, got thousands of views and I sold it. I was like, whoa, okay, well, what if I also do some education stuff? What if I start putting out stories about deals I've done or things you should do, things you shouldn't do? What if I had a beginner's playlist? What if I had an advanced level investor's playlist? What if I had a market analytics, how you analyze markets playlist? 
And so it just kind of started taking off from there. It's not a huge channel, right? I have, I don't know, like 3,000 subscribers. But what's interesting, a lot of people don't know is about between 85 and 90% of regular viewers are not subscribed. And it's because the YouTube algorithm has gotten so good that my videos pop up in front of 10,000 people regularly who think they're subscribed to me because they watch so many videos because of the algorithm, but aren't subscribed to me, right? So you have 3,000 who get my videos every week that I put them out, but I've got another seven to 10,000 who watch regularly. And that's a lot of people. When you think about there's only 1,000 people who own everything in Northern Napa, Florida, and I've got 10,000 regularly watching, that's a lot of folks who are out of state who also want to buy stuff in Florida. So it's a really cool mechanism for not just branding and marketing, but really adding value to the customer. Yeah, we're going to have to nerd off on that offline here because I love media. I love YouTube. I love finding these independent channels that have interesting content for me to go learn. And that's how I learned is by watching YouTube videos. I don't watch TV, don't watch Netflix, any of that. It's all these like 20 minute, 10 minute YouTube informational videos that are awesome. That's right. Well, I want to change us now into our last round. We're calling this the five toppings. Our first one is, what is your favorite book? Or what is a book that you've read recently that's given you a paradigm shift? I would say Deep Work is probably one of my favorite books. I can't remember who it's by. Cal Newport. Boom, that's it. So the premise behind Deep Work is that you take a few hours of your morning and you dedicate it to doing the one most important thing in your business and you shut out the entire world during that time. Nobody comes interrupt you. You turn off your social media. You don't answer emails. You don't answer calls unless it's your wife saying the house is burning down, whatever it is. And you just do the number one most important thing in your business for two hours. If you can do that uninterrupted five days a week for two hours, it's unbelievable. For me, it is talking to my 144 people on the phone or by email or by text message or by social or whatever it is. I'm just developing those 144 relationships. And if you look at the cycle of a 60-day cycle, making sure I talk to them every 60 days at minimum, it's only three or four people a day. But each of those calls could be a half an hour. Sometimes it could be two minutes. Sometimes it could be an hour. I just want to keep building and adding value to them. I'm not calling them up and saying, hey, do you want to sell? I never do that. And almost none of my calls do I ever do that. I just add value so much to the point where when it is time to sell, I am all they think about. Yep. Cal Newport puts out a bunch of good like work, yeah, deep work related stuff. So I would encourage everybody to go listen to him or check out some of the stuff he's put out. Our second one is, I believe the person that you become 10 years from now is directly correlated to the habits that you have and the routines that you have. What are some of the things that you do every single day? Dude, literally everything I do is the same thing every day over and over and over again. I am the most monotonous freak. I blame my coach calls me the freak because I just... He gives me tasks. I do them in order. It's what I do. My day is I wake up at 4.45 a.m. every single day. Not 4.50, not 5, not 4.40. 4.45 every single day. I go do my workout. I have my breakfast. At breakfast, I eat the same damn foods every single day. Like I have a Monday, Wednesday, Friday food, and I have a Tuesday, Thursday food, right? And I have a Saturday and Sunday food. After that, I'm doing my shower. I'm coming in. I'm starting my deep work time, right? I'm going to lunch with someone, family most of the time, and customers whenever I can fill them. And then when I get back from lunch, I'm spending basically from like one to four following up on all the calls and emails from the deep work time that I didn't get to do. 
And then the rest of the time I'm working on valuations or whatever it is, 6 p.m. Literally, my wife, I don't know how the hell she does it. Every single day, six colon zero zero is when dinner's ready. Never 601. We all sit down as a family. We go for a walk after that. It's shower. I'm then on the couch with my wife at eight o'clock and we're watching something together at nine. And then I'm in bed at like 923. It's like a fun game for me. I'm in bed at 923 to do it all over again. And then Saturdays and Sundays are free. I'm done at six o'clock Monday through Friday, Saturdays and Sundays. I'm doing exercise. I'll be doing cars. Cars are like my entire life. But I just do the same successful things every day without getting bored. Yeah, I am a man of routine and habit. So I love the discipline you have. And it just simplifies your life too. So totally. I hate getting off my routine, man. Yeah. Our third one is what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? I would say easily, and this may not be popular. But growing up, everyone always tells you to follow your passion. You can do your passion for work. You'll never work a day in your life, right? I think it's horrible, horrible advice because most people's passions are not something you can make a living at. I would love to drive Porsches all day, every day, but I don't know how to do that to make money. Even the top drivers in the world for Porsche don't make as much money as I do. And so it just... People want to play guitars. People want to be in a band. The best advice I've received is do what you're good at and put the 10,000 hours in and go deep with it and get better and better and better to the point where you are the best or among the best. And if you do it long enough, if you stick to it in that narrow niche of the thing that you're so good at and you do it every year you get better, you become more legendary. You become more known. I can't wait to see what my life is like in 10 years, right? Just building that reputation and building that skill set in my field is all I want to do. And so do what you're good at, okay? If you have a son or daughter who is phenomenal at looking at spreadsheets or numbers or math or whatever, encourage them to do that. They can play freaking violin on the side. They can do photography on the side. You can build that to be something super fun and be your passion. I do nothing but cars, okay, on weekends. That's my fun. And when I go to retirement during the week as well, but I don't drop what I'm doing and try to make money in cars. I'm freaking great at selling multifamily assets. Yeah, I thought at one time that I would try to develop like an Ironman brand and get into coaching around triathletes and things like that. But I remember distinctly thinking, I didn't want my passion to become something that drove what I did at work as well, because eventually those will collide. You will hate work or you'll hate your passion. And it's terrible if they're both the same thing. So I like that piece of advice. And let me just put out there. I know people today make a ton of money doing their actual passion. Okay. I'm just saying, statistically speaking, most people have made their wealth doing things that they're just good at. Yep. Our fourth one is, what's the thing that you're most proud of in your life? I would say just getting to a point in my career where I provide a good living for my wife and kids and stability and pay the bills and not worry about ever having to struggle with that. I didn't grow up around a bunch of money, right? My mom was a teacher. My dad was a real estate broker doing HUD houses. I don't think he ever made six figures in his life. I wouldn't say I grew up poor, but I certainly didn't get what I wanted all the time. And so it was a fire for me always was to get to that point where when I put my head down at night, I thought about my passions instead of how the hell I was going to do my next sale or meet my next bill or whatever, right? 
I'm super proud of that. And really the coaching I've gotten me to that point, that's really been very helpful. Yeah. It's amazing how freeing life is when you solve that money or figuring out where your next meal is coming from. Big deal, man. You wouldn't believe the, not only just the stress relief, but when stress is relieved, the other ideas and things that come to your head, you have enough time to actually come up with things that are even more productive. I love it. Our last one is if you could sit down and eat a bowl of ice cream with anyone dead or alive, who would it be and why? I don't know who it is because the person is secret, but there is a person who owns what's called the white collection, which is the greatest collection of white Porsches in the world. They're in a warehouse stored in an unknown location. If you go to YouTube and type in the white collection Porsche, it is absolutely sick. And I would love to sit down with that person, meet them. If you're listening to this person, I promise I will never reveal who you are, where this warehouse is. I want nothing. It'll just be between you and I. I just want to know who you are, what you did, how you assembled them. I want to have this conversation that we're having on this podcast about that person. Yeah, I love it. I'm thinking like, what's the insurance on that warehouse? (laughs) Yes. Who underwrites that? Well, Bo, fantastic conversation. If our listeners wanted to reach out and learn more about you or get connected with the North Florida multifamily real estate market, where's the best place we can point them? Yeah, three ways, man. Number one, my website is bowberry.com, B-E-A-U-B-E-E-R-Y.com. And whether you do business in Florida or not, the reason you want to go to my website is, first of all, on the landing page, there's a ton of amazing stats about my markets. And then if you go to resources at the top, I've got templates, guides, videos, Q&As, and I have a list of all the markets I cover. And the reason you want to click on the markets I cover, whether you invest them or not, is I want you to see the stats that I have on the type of information I have. If you can master that information for your markets, you will be on your path to an elite investor. Second way, of course, is the YouTube channel, Bo Knows Multifamily. I got a ton of great stuff on there. I do one video a week. And I don't do fluffy stuff, right? Like, here's how a broker sells a multifamily asset. Nobody cares. I do real deal stuff that's going to make you a better player every video. And the third way is you got to get my book. This is what it looks like. It's called Multifamily Investors Who Dominate. It's in hardcover on Amazon. It's on Kindle. It's on Audible. And it is 100 pages. You can read it in two or three hours. It is a true inside look that nobody ever gets to see of how brokers and the most elite investors in the world interact, how they do more transactions together, why we fall in love with these people, why we keep bringing them deals before you even see them. That's the book. Perfect. We will leave all those links in the show notes. And then, Bo, thanks for coming on. Yeah, man, you bet. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you for listening to Ice Cream with Investors. If you like what we serve you here, it would mean the world to me if you would like, subscribe, and leave a review on your favorite podcast app.